Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Today we're going to be discussing the effectiveness and the challenges on the horizon for Australia's public service and what this means more broadly for public policy. From the harrowing robo-debt Royal Commission, the launch of the Australian public service reform process and the announcement of a shift towards a wellbeing budget, we're witnessing the Australian public sector reckoning with its failures, looking to do things better and building a more equitable future. So joining us today for conversation, we are so delighted to have with us Professor Janine O'Flynn. Janine is the Director of the Crawford School here at the Australian National University. Her area of expertise is in public management, particularly in reform and relationships. But as we would expect from the Director of the Crawford School, she has a broad and deep knowledge across public policy. Welcome, Janine. It's so great to have you with us and in person. Can we start today's discussion by hearing some more about you and your work? Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, in my first few months as the director of, of the Crawford School and as many people at the Crawford School know but perhaps not your listeners this is a return to the ANU and to the Crawford School for me I was introduced recently by the Vice-Chancellor as absconding somewhere for a decade and returning. He didn't mention where I went, but um, I had a, an amazing career here at the Crawford School um, in my, my early days as an academic where I spent a lot of time connecting up with the Australian Public Service and doing a range of big research projects, looking at everything from how does government work with itself through to how does it design great performance management systems. I spent many years in the classroom with amazing students from all across the world. So coming back here for me is a great pleasure and an enormous privilege. And I'm excited to land in Canberra at a time when we're doing a, a major rethink of how do we operate the public service? How do we think about what the role of the public service is? What are our big long-term goals uh, for the community? And, and how do we rethink the way that the public service itself operates, particularly in response to some fairly major um, issues that have come out of robo-debt, but also alongside of a big aspirational reform agenda? 
Janine, it's, it's not only great to have you with us today, it is so great to have you back at Crawford. The only downside is it makes me realise just how long I've been here for because <laughs> I was here when you left and I'm here when you came back. <laughs> it's really lovely to have you back. And, I, you. and I should say for our listeners that I think lots of people know, Janine, about your incredible leadership and your incredible research. Janine is one of the best teachers that this school has ever had and so our students are also lucky to, to have you back. Uh, Janine, we're we're at the beginning, as you've you've already flagged, at the beginning of a year that may well be a defining one for Australia's future and and how we reconcile with the past, but how we how we think about ourselves, what kind of society that we want to be. And as we think about all of those things, I think integrity is absolutely critical if there is to be trust in the public sector and in public policy more broadly. So maybe we can begin with that one enormous confronting example of a failure of integrity in public policy, and, and that is robo-debt um, and the Royal Commission into what went so very wrong. Can we ask you perhaps to start by outlining a little bit about the robo-debt scheme, but perhaps also to talk a little bit about the disastrous consequences of it, not just at a human level, but also in terms of the legitim legitimacy of the public service and trust in public policy processes broadly. Yeah, Sharon, I mean, anyone who's been watching this, even on a casual basis through discussion in the media, will be aware here in, in Australia of the devastating effects of, of what's happened through what's now become known as robo-debt. And in, indeed, one of our colleagues, Peter Whiteford, just had a major report come out, which I would encourage people to, to look at, that came out um, very recently and was commissioned by, by the Royal Commission itself. In some ways, it's a very simple story, which is uh, a decision was was made around how to think about income that people had earned uh, versus what they received in in welfare payments from from the state, and the idea that you could um, average people's income across a year and stack that up against what they'd received in terms of things like unemployment payments, for example. This created, in in some ways, a, an opportunity for for a government that thought it would be able to collect up a whole range of of debts from people, um, that they'd be able to raise debts from people who, uh, in the thinking of that scheme, had um, had attained welfare payments that they weren't really entitled to. But at the at the centre of that um, scheme was. Uh, illegal and um, I would say immoral <laughs> sort of decision that was made around the the calculation of that. From the start, it was seen as Peter Whiteford has rightfully said in a piece very recently as a stupid decision um, and should have been picked up very early on, as it, as it was by many commentators, that you couldn't actually reconcile these two different ways of thinking about people's income, either legally or, or practically. The long-term repercussions of that, I think we aren't really going to know about for some years in terms of issues of integrity, what it means for the service. But we do know from the lived experience of people who are at the receiving end of those debts and were put under extraordinary pressure to repay them with very little ability to challenge them, uh, no phone number <laughs> provided for them to ring, um, a seemingly enormous state against them as individuals. Um, incredible stress, anxiety, and as has been discussed in the commission, people who have um, taken their own lives because of the stress they were under. The fact that in the commission we have seen a whole range of people almost 
disregarding the impacts of those decisions, I think, has been one of the horrors of, of watching that unfold. I referred to, to the commission hearings recently as a slow-moving horror story because for people who care about the integrity of public administration, um, it has these, these layers of complexity within it. The relationship between politicians and public servants, who does what within the public service, who takes responsibility, who's accountable for decisions that are made. And we've seen that cascading through a very complex system to the point where individuals who are very vulnerable and are having to rely on the state um, for, to be honest, quite meagre um, incomes to help them survive have been at the end of this extraordinary series of, of decisions. So for me, it, it raises a whole issue about integrity in the system itself. What are the, the questions that we need to ask about the service? Um, yeah, I mean, for a person who's spent their entire life looking at public administration management, it's been a real uh, revelation and not one that I think people will be very proud of for some time to come. Jenny, I think you described the process that we've watched unfold through the Royal Commission so well, the slow-moving train wreck. Uh, at times it's been horrifying and other times it's been deeply har harrowing. And for many of us, it's really got us thinking about the nature of government and the role that it plays in our life. At one point, Kathleen Madgwid, who was the mother of Jared, a young man who took his own life uh, only weeks after receiving letters demanding payment of debts, said that there'd been a failure of duty of care in rolling out the system. What duty of care do government departments have and, and perhaps the responsible ministers have to, to our public? And is robo-debt going to lead to a rethinking of that concept of the duty of care? I think if robo-debt doesn't lead to a rethinking of that, it's a catastrophe of another, of another sort, which is if we cannot learn from what has happened in that at, at every stage of decisions that were made or not made, um, I think that'll be catastrophic for the future of the Australian public service. And, and we have to confront that and we have to really understand what that's meant. I think when you... Uh, are talking about the great power that the state holds over people's day-to-day -day lives, about their ability to, in this case, to subsist, um, then we do have a great duty of care. And that comes from the top down to the front line of, of people who are interacting with um, welfare recipients in this case. And in fact, some of the, the harrowing um, stories have come from staff working on the front line, um, you know, trying to make sense of this with with people who are fronting up at the uh, at Centrelink, unable to understand what's going on, it was incomprehensible to most people. I think that that sort of advice that that was provided. So there's, there's a duty of care to you know the end recipients of this, and I think policymakers, both politically politically appointed and um, and public servants, have a great duty of care to those who are going to be regulated or, or controlled or coerced or, or in some way um, at the end of those decisions that, that are made. Um, and I think that goes across all of what we do in the public service. This is not some separate group of people to you and I sitting, <laughs> sitting in an office making decisions. Um, we are there to serve the community. And I think that once we forget that and there's a huge distance between that, then these sorts of problems might emerge more and more. Uh, what worries me about 
learning the lessons of RoboDead is this may not be the only one um, of these these challenges that that we're going to see um, emerge. If that's if that's one that's been um, allowed to develop over many years, then I wouldn't be surprised if there's some more to come um, in years to, in years to come as well. You know, Janine, when I, I hear you talking and I reflect on what the people who participate in our research about what it is to live in contexts of poverty and disadvantage talk about, you know, it it almost seems to me that robo-debt was not the inevitable outcome, but a clear outcome of many, many years of a political narrative and a broader public discourse that is around naming and shaming people for needing government support rather than thinking about how we can actually support people. And those kinds of, you know, that, that continual language that eroded people's spirits, eroded people's dignity of lifters and leaners, of people getting, you know, hand ups, not handouts, you know, all of that, that deeply entrenched attitude that we are in some way better than people who, who need support created the space for this to happen and for people to be so discarded or disregarded and, and mistreated. But I also wonder what impact this has on people who are thinking about a career in the public service and, and how, it, how it impacts on the, the view that the public service has for itself. You know, and of course here at Crawford, we, we're, we're educating people who often want a career in the public sector because they deeply care. They deeply want to make positive change in Australia or in the world. What do you think? is likely to be the reputational impact or the reputational damage for the public service, particularly amongst people who are thinking about their career paths? It's a, it's a really important question. And there's there's two things perhaps. So I'll, I'll come back to the, the first um, part of your question there, which is really about the use of dehumanising language, um, which is something I've been looking at in some other work I'm doing Public service motivation is a is a particular type of motivation that really draws people to public service around um, around the world. And, and colleagues of mine all around the world have been looking at this topic for many many decades. That there is something special that attracts and retains um, a sort of service, a, a motivation to serve, and that it's something that really um, we have to cultivate if we want to ensure that we do retain a, a public service which is. Um, you know, really focused on community and and how do we better people's lives, which I think many people are attracted uh, to public services around the world to do. That's why they come into there rather than to other sectors. Although we have seen, you know, increasingly over the last decade or so, people, uh, young people particularly attracted to working in NGO sector because they see that as a better pathway actually to solving the world's problems. Um, so I, I think a scandal like this in, in Australia does raise... Um, more broadly questions of legitimacy, like is the state really interested in in helping people? Um, and what would be the role of someone coming into the public service? I mean, months and months of daily media coverage about, um, it's fair to say at some points in that, disdain for uh, welfare uh, recipients, people who are entitled to access those uh, services and payments. Um, a, a sort of distancing of them as a, a separate cohort of, of people um, might really have a quite profound effect on people's motivation uh, to serve. And, and I suspect that 
uh, people in the public service now who are watching that unfold may start to question profoundly whether they're in the right uh, place to get the sort of business done that they, they want to, to get done or whether they might be better served to be elsewhere. I, I think there's a really important role at this stage for leaders in the public service to talk about things like pride and courage. Uh, you saw in the commission stories of people raising repeatedly questions about the legitimacy, the legality, the morality of, of the scheme itself. They're courageous. It takes a lot to stand up in a system like that, which is, you know, really engineered to be impersonal. Um, that's what bureaucracy, you know, is all about. How do we create essentially a machine where we can write rules that will be um, applied to everybody in an efficient way. I mean, that's, that's bureaucracy. It's one of the beauties of bureaucracy, in fact, when it works well. But it does engineer out things like emotion. Uh, it does engineer out a lot of, a lot of feeling and, and thinking about that because you've got rules to apply. And we heard that over and over, which is that wasn't my decision to make. The decision had already been taken. I was following the rules. This was the policy of the time. And in some ways that provides people, I think, a sense of um, protection about having to make decisions themselves. But if we don't learn from that, then I think this is a slow, corrosive um, process for any any public service. This is a big reality check, um, and and I suspect that leaders across the public service are going to have a big job to start talking, as they should, um, about how to rebuild pride, um, how to talk to people about what went wrong, acknowledging that big mistakes were made, and things have to change. I mean, this is dovetailing with a large-scale reform agenda coming out of um, Minister Katie Gallier's office, which is about things like trust, putting citizens at the centre of what government does. So these are sort of colliding at a point in time where the, um, the current government has a big aspirational agenda around public sector reform but is dealing with something that has, as I said before, been this slow-moving sort of horror story um, and they're coalescing at the same time. It's very difficult to reconcile those two things at, at once when you're a leader in the public service trying to, to talk about rebuilding trust and um, citizen centricity, co-designing, you know, with clients and so on at the same time as this has, has emerged. So um, that's a really, a really challenging time, I think, um, for both people in the service themselves, which will probably go about some reflection um, and, and thinking about their own roles and, and how do we make sure that the public services around the world are places where people want to be to do great work. On your first point, uh, I just want to go back to that for a second, which is how language gets used in, um, in really what we could think of as a dehumanising sort of process. And I've been doing some work over several years in a very long-awaited book, which at some stage will come out, hopefully this year, um, which looks at this idea of markets for misery, government outsourcing and how the use of, of outsourcing um, sort of locks together with dehumanisation. I particularly looked at uh, incarceration, so prisons and probation, but also in 
um, detention centres and um, border protection around the world. And it's a, it's a strategy that is used in that to allow for um, what some people call great evil to be um, done on behalf of the state. And in fact, there's a, a very rich literature on administrative evil, how governments um, create systems to enact great evil. And one of the strategies for doing that is actually through um, dehumanisation and how you go about uh, dividing into them and us. And you see, you see strategies of that done in, in areas all around the world, particularly around um, migration, forced migration and refugees. And we've seen that in, in the Australian case. People referred to in offshore detention centres by numbers. Um, this discussion around people not being real refugees. Um, and that, that sort of language is, um, is very powerful in shifting discourses and, and enabling uh, evil to be carried out on behalf of the state. And there's, there's really quite incredible work that's been done on that over many years, uh, looking at, at how that comes together into catastrophic events. And I think in, in RoboDebt we see some of that dehumanisation um, strategy and, and we also see some of the effects of that as people who are seemingly unworthy um, of things that they're not actually entitled to, but which make us in the end a better society to provide. RoboDebt has certainly highlighted the catastrophic impacts that dehumanisation plays in a public service, uh, impacts that, pub uh, that public policy has directly on people's lives that will resonate not just at the time, but for a long time afterward. But shouldn't the state have a more positive impact on our lives? Can't it create an environment where we have pride and courage, where we can care for each other and make the world a better place? What role does the public service have in leading or contributing to discussions, not, about, not just about the nuts and bolts of policy, but about that future vision for our country? It absolutely does. And so just in case people think I'm a, a total pessimist, which my last sort of points were, but they're very pragmatic reflection on what's going on at the time. Uh, another big project I'm working on is on positive public administration. This is what helps me sleep at night and balance out <laughs> the work I'm doing, working with a group of colleagues who are looking at what government does right. So that, that helps me to, <laughs> to sort of balance my pessimistic and optimistic tendencies quite well. Um, so I, I think there's great work to be done in that area. I think um, we're looking across the world at a whole range of different examples of what happens when public administration is done very well, where the state sets out quite ambitious um, goals for society. Um, and we've got everything from colleagues in Bhutan writing about gross national happiness uh, through to, to people writing about um, interventions that have helped to reduce the rate of female genital mutilation in Burkina Faso. I mean, the, the scope of work that we're seeing in that is just extraordinary. And I'm, I'm really excited to be having the opportunity to also look at what happens when government does things well and what are the lessons that we can learn from that. Because we do have a bias towards looking at things that go wrong. Even if you're a person like me who's interested in reform and doing things better, we often look at... Um, failures or scandals and so on, not just because that's where all the excitement is at the time of, um, of what's going on in the media and in politics and so on, but to pull out how we can do things better and, and different in the future. So I think that government has an absolutely important role in doing that. Um, I think we're starting to 
to see some of that emerging through in the the current government. Uh, I know we're going to talk about the wellbeing budget, um, but you know a budget is in in essence a reflection of values. Where do we want to spend our money, and what do we think is important? Um, and so I think uh, a shift towards that is a is a very exciting thing to watch for people like me who spend their time thinking about the public sector, um, and and I'm excited to see where that's going to take us. A note of hope and optimism is the perfect place for us to stop for a short break. Um, so listeners, don't go away. We will be back in just a few minutes with Professor Janino Flynn. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate. Welcome back to Policy Forum Pod. We are here with the director of the Crawford School, Professor Janine O'Flynn. Uh, Janine, we, we flagged earlier in the conversation the APS reform that's underway. Um, back in 2018, the then coalition government commissioned an independent review of the public service. The review was chaired by David Thrody um, and handed down its report in 2019. Um, in it, the report called for a public service that is trusted, future fit, responsive and agile. So the current government has now put in place a, a process of reform for the Australian Public Service. How is that reform process positioning Australia to be able to address some of the challenges that we're facing, the challenges that are on the horizon, and also to restore confidence in, the, in, in Australian public policy delivery? It's a, it's a really fascinating time. As I, I said in the opening, there's no better time for a person who's interested in public sector reform to be in Canberra. Uh, there's a very ambitious reform agenda underway by the current government. It is taking a lot of its inspiration from that uh, Thody report, which was the independent review of the Australian Public Service. What's really fascinating to me as someone who has spent a very long time looking at public sector reform is these reports often land with a bit of a thud. And when the 30 report landed, people, um, there was a lot of commentary about, oh, it's not really going anywhere, no one's that interested in it. Um, and I thought that was a little bit too hasty of an eva evaluation of the of the work. A similar thing happened to the Coombs report, which is now absolutely regarded as, you know, the one of the most foundational documents of our modern Australian public service. So when the, the Royal Commission was done, um, led by Nugget Coombs, that report also landed with a bit of a thud and it took quite some time to take off. And in fact, if we looked at the recommendations from that, we'd say that they're still being implemented 50 years later. Um, I mentioned this to some colleagues in the public service just a few weeks ago and they were 
a bit taken aback, but um, have gone off, I think, to look back at Coombs because many of the things that that Coombs um, argued for we're also seeing emerge now. So everything old is new again. There's some really new and exciting stuff in, in the Thody report, but I think that has given a big picture vision um, to how we might think about the public service and what it does and how it goes about um, doing it. So it is really ambitious. It's going to be a slow process. I know that in, in Canberra that's being talked about as a, a window of opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime, a once-in-a-generation, sorry, uh, opportunity for transformative change. So maybe the fact that we're dealing with some really profound things that have gone wrong at the same time as looking at reform may be helpful. It may not be. It might it might create a bit of risk aversion in that reform, um, or it might trigger some really foundational changes. So the current government is particularly interested in trust. Many of the ministers have talked about trust in the public service, rebuilding that. Uh, Australia had a huge leap in trust at the start of the pandemic, um, one of the biggest jumps actually across the world. Um, the trust in, in government levels in Australia went uh, through the roof. And then we had the crash that came after, the, the trust bubble burst, as everybody who's interested in, in trust sort of talked about. But it, it still came back to um, higher than pre-COVID levels. So um, I think we'll wait to see what some of the current sort of uh, impact will be from, from RoboDebt if there is one on sort of general levels of, of trust. But certainly the, the reform agenda is big. Um, it is transformative and it is about setting us up for how do we deal with these much more complex challenges. And in a sense, the, the pandemic showed us that laid bare, how do different parts of government work together or not? Uh, how do levels of government work together or not? How do we confront these challenges that have absolutely no respect for the boundaries that we create either between departments or between states and territories or countries? You know, COVID doesn't care um, who's got decision-making responsibility or, or accountability. And certainly um, we know that, that citizens uh, don't care either. They just want something to be fixed. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting looking at the early data coming out during COVID around trust was that um, the community expected government to lead and to lead with um, everything that it had. And we saw that, I think, particularly in Australia. We are certainly living in a time that's characterised by uncertainty and complexity and new challenges on the horizon, challenges like the urgency of, it, of building a truly inclusive and just society to the problems that people are facing on a daily basis because of the cost of living. You mentioned just before in terms of public service review that we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for transformative change. And I think we do we see glimmers of hope in other areas Jim Chalmers has talked openly about the need for a wellbeing budget, and you've talked about this too. You've talked about particularly the need for humility as we seek solutions to these very significant policy challenges. I wonder if you see the wellbeing framework as a glimmer of hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really, it, it's a fascinating idea. Um, of course, we've, as always happens in, in public policy circles, we borrow a little bit and steal and mimic what's going on in, in other places. So we uh, sometimes let others road test that that idea, and of course, our friends in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have been um, have been working with the wellbeing budget for a while. So uh, there'll be close 
watching of what's happened there and, and how we will um, develop our own version of that here. Uh, I think it it's actually a really exciting time because it, it sort of redefines the budget in a bit. It tells us what the budget's for um, and and where do we actually think it's important to invest our collective um, assets, right? I mean, a, a budget is really saying everybody here has to put the, pull their money together, their resources together to achieve something. And so I often think that that's a useful way to think about a budget. And so a budget is full of values decisions about what we think is important or not, what's more important than other other things in our society. So framing it with a totally different narrative, I think is really important to get people thinking about the budget uh, in a new way. And I noticed when um, when the treasurer started talking about the wellbeing budget, and he had his piece come out in the monthly. He he was critiqued from both sides of of the fence in in many ways, and there was a lot of fluster and bluster about this idea of a wellbeing budget and him, you know, being inspired by people like Professor Mariana Mazzucato, who talks about public value and the role of, of the state in in really leading uh, these debates, and so that tells you that there's something in it. Um, and and so I look forward to seeing how he's going to drive that that agenda. I think when you raise the interest and the critique of all sides, you, you're on to a powerful idea. I think so. <laughs> Janine, this, this has been such a powerful conversation about so many issues that impact directly on our lives every day, even though they sometimes feel as though they're playing out at, at a distance. And they also impact so powerfully on our futures. As we close this conversation and as we think about our pathway forward and how we deal with the many challenges that, that we face, I'd love to hear your reflections on how we can balance the, the deep complexity that we face and that faces the public service and the government, how we can balance that complexity with both humility and the need for urgent action and where listening might fit into all of that. It's a really interesting question and one of the things I've been uh, thinking a lot about, and perhaps this came from having a quite isolated experience for about three years in Victoria where basically I sat in my office at home <laughs> contemplating life like many, many people and this strange and peculiar experience that we all had during COVID. Um, and at that point in time, there was also in my field a sense of how do we rejuvenate the field? What does our field look like? And so I was asked um, a couple of times to write these quite reflective but prospective pieces. What does what does COVID mean? What what is the changes of the last few years meant for our field? And and some of the big themes that I really settled on were about humility and empathy, um, but also this idea of how do we juggle that with complexity and and I think for me some really fascinating works coming out. Um, of the Finnish, Finnish government actually looking at humble government, this idea that you can think about government being humble, that it doesn't have all of the answers, that listening is important, that it's okay to say you don't know, and also to be iterative and adapt over time. Now, that's interesting because in the Australian context, iterative and, and adaptive means being agile, right? So we don't call it humility, we call it agility. Um, but the Finns are, are really interested in this idea of, of humble government and being able to have that sort of conversation about not knowing or that we will learn as we go and, and we can change. 
I think this year in particular in the context of Australia listening is really important. Uh, obviously, we're going into a, a referendum around a really very important historical moment, I think, in, um, in Australia. And one of the things that strikes me in the world of, of public policy is how much extraordinary knowledge um, developed over thousands of years we hold here to confront some of the biggest public policy challenges of our time. And we have not listened to that. And perhaps this year, as we go through, I hope, a process of listening and of, of learning about the place that we're in, that we might see some of that in a much more fundamental way, moving to public policy circles. In my own field, we have this always looking for what's new. And if I look back over the last few years about what's new, there's things like co-design, systems thinking, relationality. None of these are new ideas. In fact, these are at the core of um, Indigenous uh, values in the Australian context and define many uh, First Nations sort of value sets around the world. But here in this place where custodians of, um, of the lands and water here have for thousands of years protected and stewarded that for next generations, for us not to listen to that seems to me to be absolutely crazy. Janine O'Flynn, this has been the most amazing way for us to start this podcast for 2023. Humility, listening, uncertainty, the shared decision-making, collaboration and caring. You are an inspiration and give us hope for how we might see the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on the ANU Crawford School's Policy Forum pod for that remarkable conversation with Professor Janine O'Flynn. If you've enjoyed this pod, please leave a review and for further information on any of the issues that we discussed on this episode, please take a look at the show notes. You'll find lots of information there. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's A at APPS Policy Forum, or via email at podcast at policyforum.net. We talked about some challenging issues during this episode, and if this podcast has raised any issues for you, in Australia, you can contact Lifeline, which is 131114. So until next time, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.